Hello, welcome and thank you for watching. This is the first in a series of classes entitled Narrow Road, Broad Mind and the theme today is a question of time and this is acting as an illustration for the rest of the series so I'm actually going to tell you what the series is about when we get to the end. So here we start with Stonehenge, obviously a very iconic site worldwide, um, but we don't know definitively why Stonehenge was built. There are numerous theories and the most recent I came across was that it was a look what we can do statement because the Britons felt insecure because of the technical advancement of Europeans who were coming over to visit the site. And so they dragged these huge stones 200 miles from Wales. Speechless. Uh, it said that the wheel was in use for three centuries on continental Europe before it was in use in Britain. And uh, I found that initially humiliating, though I was greatly comforted when I recalled that the Anglo-Saxons, the forebears of the English, were still in Europe at the time and uh, still there for another three odd millennia. So my forebears were were still in northern europe and uh, possibly making wheels who knows but certainly my more recent uh, forebears were involved in the wheel industry because this is a picture of edgeley loco sheds in stockport where my grandfather and a great uncle worked as a locomotive engineer and driver respectively and this was after the british uh, united in the united kingdom had taken the wheel to the next level made up for the previous fiasco by attaching the wheel to the steam engine and the age of the railways was born but this led to britain confronting a problem for the first time uh, a problem of time because up to this point any town established its time in relation to the sun when the sun is at its point highest point that is midday so any move you make to the east or west you're going to be in a different time zone so every town effectively was in its own unique time zone. Imagine trying to construct a train timetable when every stop is in a different time zone. Not easy. And GWR being the most exposed because they run east to west to this issue, came up with this solution. It's an early GWR timetable. It says London time is kept at all the stations on the railway. And then it gives you the time difference between the various stops and London time. Basically, the passengers had to work it out for themselves. But this ultimately led to the adoption nationwide of Greenwich Mean Time, which is why today we get to tell the rest of the world what time it is. So there's a similar situation existed with dating, years, months, etc. Because if you imagine each of these uh, balloons represents a different country, with its chronology of this queen followed this king followed this king they're all floating independently so there's no way of locating them on the on a timeline or in relation to each other and that's the great difficulty we have with um, ancient history so this was aided to a great extent when the uh, monk dionysius exiguus um, came up with the AD system when he rebased a Roman system to the birth of Jesus. 
so he could calculate Easter time. And that then gives us a means of working back and locating history on this timeline and then going even further beyond it into the before Christ era. As you can see on this slide, uh, it shows at the bottom that we can go back further with confidence for the history of Israel than we can for the history of Egypt, strange as that may sound. So we can go all the way back to Saul with confidence with a variance of about 20 years between different theories, but pretty much on par. Um, but as far as Egypt is concerned, we can only go back to 663, the sacking of Thebes by the Assyrians. And actually beyond that, Egypt is located in history by cross-referencing it to the Bible. And there's uh, two references. First of all, this reference um, regarding Pyramuses or Pyramus. So in Exodus 1, it says that the Hebrew slaves built the cities of Python and Ramesses. That seems to indicate that the pharaoh associated with the oppression or the exodus was Ramesses, the man for whom the city was built. But note, it doesn't actually name him. It just says a new king arose. Secondly, the reference to uh, the plunder of Jerusalem in 1 Kings 14. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, King Shishak of Egypt came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. The issue for us is not what he took, but who he was, because Shishak is a Hebrew variant of a Egyptian name. We don't know for sure who he is. What we do know is most historians accept that this happened in 925 BC. So if we can establish who Shishak was, we can locate, uh, we've got two marking points then to locate Egypt in history. So if you look through all the lists of the pharaohs and the names they had, by far the closest to Shishak is Shoshank. And Champollion, a Frenchman um, in 1828, the man who deciphered the Rosetta Stone, he went to Karnak, he found um, a wall detailing the exploits of Pharaoh Shoshin I, and he found references to a military campaign in Syria, Palestine. And he also thought he saw a reference to Judah. He misread it, and within 20 years this was acknowledged. But because of this campaign in Syria, pa Palestine, because of the similarity in the two names, it became an orthodox established belief foundation of Egyptology that Shishak and Shoshenk the first were one and the same. So we have two interpretations of biblical statements locating us with Ramesses II as the date of the Exodus and Shoshenk I as Shishak. So the key pr proponent of this um, orthodoxy, probably, is uh, a man called Kenneth Kitchen. I imagine he's retired now, but he was at Liverpool University in look at that link at the bottom you can actually access his student the material he had for his students and on the basis of 925 for the plunder of Jerusalem using this chronology these two links these two interpretations we get dates for the exodus and the conquest within the 13th century BC. Kitchen makes strong arguments if you read the papers they seem very strong he's an evangelical Christian and he believes in God's word and he aims through his work to prove God's word. And uh, this theory is also supported by people like DJ Wiseman, who was the editor of the um, previous Tyndale Bible commentary series. 
but there is a major problem with this theory. And it's here, it's when we combine or compare the evidence produced by this documentary analysis of uh, Egyptian inscriptions and Bible with archeology. span And you see on the left that red arrow, that's showing that there's a, a big problem that as far as the archeologists are concerned, Jericho was uh, destroyed up in the 15th century BC. And so by the time that Joshua arrives on these orthodox dates, there was no Jericho to destroy. It had been destroyed and abandoned centuries earlier. So on the basis of this, we see the Bible rejected as a historical document. This is a, a quote from a very um, significant figure in the um, archaeology of the Middle East called Israel Finkelstein. And he said, biblical history did not take place in either the particular era or the manner described. Some of the most famous events in the Bible clearly never happened at all. And that view is representative of most of the archaeological community. Secondly, um, a leading rabbi is described as one of the most influential rabbis in America, Rabbi David Wolpe, and he's a conservative rabbi. He astonished his congregation about a decade ago when celebrating the Passover, he said, the way the Bible describes the Exodus is not the way it happened, if it happened at all. So that's the problem we have when we look at this uh, conventional chronology, however good it may be in terms of documentary analysis, it leaves this conflict with the archeology span that leads to the Bible being rejected. But what does the Bible actually say? Interestingly, the Bible says in 1 Kings 6, in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. We can locate Solomon's fourth year as 967 BC, add on 479 years, it's the 480th year, gives us a very precise date for the Exodus and the conquest. At significant variance to the dates established by the conventional chronology, you can see at the right. So how does the conventional chronology, how do Bible believers like Kenneth Kitchen explain that? Essentially, uh, Kitchen claims that the 480 years is a numerological rather than a numerical number, that it's to be understood um, symbolically. And he quite rightly points out that 40 is a very significant number in the Exodus story, and it's the number that it, it's the number of years it took for one generation to die out. So he's saying 480 years is the Bible's way of telling us it was 12 generations of 40 years. So if we had a, if we use a more um, likely reference point for a generation of 25 years, that gives us a total of 300 years. That might be plausible if it gave us a nice match between the Bible and the, or the interpretation of the Bible and the archaeology, but clearly it doesn't. So is, the, is there a solution or do we simply have to accept that the Bible isn't reliable as a historical document? I'll step forward David Roll. Back in the 1990s, um, David Roll uh, was uh, an Egypt Egyptologist and uh, he went through Kenneth Kitchen's chronology with a fine tooth comb, a, a period called the Third Intermediate Period. And he concluded that there were two significant anomalies. 
which could only be explained by there being two dynasties ruling at the same time simultaneously. And in order to accommodate this, then dates would have to be revised by about 300 years. So he produced a new chronology of Egypt, but it was rejected by the Egyptological world. And so he turned to the Bible because of these cross-references to try and seek support for his new chronology. And he presented this in this book, A Test of Time. And uh, there was a corresponding series on Channel 4 uh, called Pharaohs and Kings uh, back in the 1990s again, but it's still available on four on demand. For some reason, they not only uh, number the episodes incorrectly, they also have them in the wrong order. So the correct order, last time I looked, was four, five, three, and four is just about those in anomalies in Egypt. So you may well be happy just to watch five and three, but I'd certainly encourage you to do so because it expands on what I'm talking about now. So Roll compares the two sources we're, we're looking at in identifying Shoshenk as Shishak, um, the Karnak inscriptions in Egypt and the evidence in the Bible. So at Karnak, it says that Shoshenk attacked Israel, but no reference to attacking Judah. Yet in the Bible, Shishak attacks Judah and not Israel. So we have a complete opposite. In the inscriptions, Shoshenk attacks Jeroboam, who was the king of the Northern Kingdom. But in the book of Abijah, it's not in the Bible, but it's a Jewish writing. It says that Shishak was actually an ally of Jeroboam and Shishak sheltered Jeroboam from Solomon. So again, that gives us cause to, to question the reliability of this um, interpretation that those two are the same. And to add to that, Roll places uh, Shoshenk I in the 8th century BC, whereas the Bible places Shishak in the 10th century BC. So again, this makes the, the link between these two seem very tenuous. So is there a, a pharaoh who says he plundered Jerusalem, a different pharaoh? Well, yes, there is. Ramesses II, surprisingly, the one who's supposed to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. But in his temple at Abu Simbel, it says that in the eighth year of his reign, he launched a campaign in Syria, Palestine, and it uh, culminated in the plundering of Shalem, the original name of Jerusalem. And in Roll's new chronology, Ramesses is not up in the uh, 14th century, uh, sorry, 13th century, as according to the Orthodox conventional chronology, but he's in the uh, 10th century, just where we need him to be for Shishak. But the obvious question is, why would the Bible call somebody, the Egyptians called Ramesses, Shishak? First thing we have to understand here is Ramesses is uh, a Greek name, a bit like we call Yeshua Jesus, derived from the Greek version of his name. And uh, in hieroglyph form, it's, as you can see there, something like Ramuzu. But like Hebrew, hieroglyphics didn't have uh, letters for vowels. And so we don't know what vowels occurred in between those um, three hieroglyphic or four hieroglyphical symbols. And uh, we get some clues. There are uh, some inscriptions that use consonants to try and indicate vowel sounds. But the other thing we have to bear in mind is that pharaohs generally, not just in Egypt, kings elsewhere, had shortened forms of their name called hypochristicans. And we know that the hypochristican of Ramesses was the two S's in the middle. 
and these are used not just uh, as a nickname but on official inscriptions about there's a port in the Mediterranean that says this was built by Siswa, where there's a Y and W giving us a, an indication that his hypochristian would be pronounced something like Siswa. So we're getting closer to Shishak. The, the biggest help we get is from a treaty signed between the Egyptians and the Hittites. And the Egyptian reference to uh, Ram, Ramesses, or part of it, he had a long title, was called Uzamatra Ramesu, but the Hittite version as you can see, the underlying section gives Ramesses as Riyamashisha. The useful thing for the, uh, with the Hittites is that they wrote in syllables, so we get the, the vowel sounds. And you can see there that the S's are given a sh sound, giving us the name, the hypocritical of Shisha. So we're very, very close to Shishak now. So where do we get the K is a big question. Well, as I've explained before, the Hebrew scribes like to insult foreigners by corrupting their name to say something derogatory. And the best example is Jezebel. Jezebel had a Phoenician name, which meant Baalist prince. But the way the uh, Hebrew scribes wrote it in the Bible, it means, where is the piece of dung? And I showed you a couple of years ago how uh, David Roll identified uh, the Sumerian king Enmakar as Nimrod the hunter from uh, Genesis. Uh, adding a D on the end to create the Hebrew word for he who rebels. And the Hebrew for one who assaults is shashak. So you can see by ending, adding a K onto shisha, we get uh, a reference to the plundering of Jerusalem. That's Rolls theory. Also, if you watch something I'll show you later, um, he provides an alternative explanation as well. So, when did the, the conquest actually take place? Well, Roll accepts the literal adoption of this 480th year reference point, giving us uh, dates for the exodus and conquest in the 15th century. What does that do? Well, if we go back to our timeline, we can see that now Ramesses is down at the bottom alongside Shishak and Rehoboam. So Shishak is Ramesses. But what happens to the Exodus is it's now right up where it needs to be for the conquest to take place while Jericho is still standing. And uh, the archaeological evidence of the um, destruction of Jericho is very strongly um, in line with the biblical account. It appears to have been destroyed by earthquake and only once it's collapsed has it been set on fire. So if we overcome the problem of the timing, there's a very good corroboration. But what about the fact that under the orthodox chronology, there is no evidence for the Hebrews in Egypt? The key here is that archaeologists talk in terms of strata and layers. And basically, the further back in history you want to go, the deeper you have to dig down. And the problem with the uh, lack of evidence for Hebrews in Egypt is not that there is no evidence for Canaanites in Egypt. It's just that under the orthodox chronology, it's in the wrong layer. So there is evidence for Canaanites in Egypt um, if we allow for that and look in different layers. And uh, this brings us to a man called Manfred Bietak, an Austrian who set out for one of the, the holy grails of Egyptology once it had become more secular and less about proving the Bible. And that was the goal to find Pyramus, the city of Ramesses. And it was originally found in Tanis, the local location of um, 
Rages of the Lost Ark, just where, if you can, I don't know if you can see my cursor, uh, there's Tanis just above the red circle. Um, but it appears that Pyramus was actually moved stone by stone and statue by statue because the water source dried up and relocated to Tanis. And uh, it was Btech who located it below, above the red circle where you can see it says Tel El Daba, in brackets, Avarice Pyramus. So he found the, the foundations of Pyramus there. But underneath those foundations, he found evidence of a large Canaanite settlement. So what would, this would suggest is that the reason the Bible says that the Hebrews built the city of Pyramus is that it was simply an updated name of the city that they had originally built. It was originally Avaris, but at the time it was being written about or updated, re-edited, it was now called uh, Ramesses, so the biblical writers inserted the new name. Much like uh, my birth certificate says I was born in Salisbury, Rhodesia, but my passport says I was born in Harare, Zimbabwe. There's no contradiction there. My passport is simply updating the information to the current name. So here we see a map on the right of the archaeological site. So you see at the top, Pyramus and Avaris may have been a much larger area than has been excavated. Only a small area has been um, excavated, but it shows centuries before Pyramus was this Canaanite settlement that was at some point abandoned and lay waste for several centuries before Pyramus was built over the top. Here's a picture of Manfred Btech at the archaeological site and you can see uh, in the information below that it says his concern was that these, the evidence of these Canaanites was simply too early to have been the, um, the Hebrews of the Bible. Because under the conventional chronology, you can see on the, the left, there's only a 200 year gap between Ramesses, so Pyramus, and Avaris. But if we go over to the right to our new chronology, we see the 600 year gap that BTEC is looking for. And there's a lot of corroborative evidence. First of all, the first buildings in Avaris were of the Syrian style found in Abraham's homeland of Haran. And these people kept large flocks we can um, establish from the skeletal evidence. There are mass graves of, infant, uh, of infants and of adult graves, 60% are female, not a natural um, balance. Or we've seen evidence here of the killing of the Hebrew males recounted in Exodus 1. If you look on the map on the left, you can see on the uh, little guide, it says number three, Joseph's Palace. Joseph's Palace. And this on the right, this image on the right, is a reconstruction of a palatial residence um, that Btek himself acknowledges was the home of a very important Egyptian official who wasn't actually Egyptian. And in the ground, you can see at the rear um, a number of structures that look a bit like pigsties in this image, but in fact, they are memorial chapels. And very interestingly, there are 12 of them. Can you think of 12 significant individuals associated with the sons of Jacob? And the most interesting one of these is the one right at the back, which you can see a small pyramid. Just circle it with the, the cursor. 
What's extraordinary about that is that only pharaohs and queens were buried in pyramids. And we here have not only someone who is not a pharaoh or a king, he's not even an Egyptian. This is a unique honor in all Egyptological um, archeology. span There is no other example of a non-Egyptian or a non-pharaoh queen being buried in a pyramid. So who might this be? Well, in the, uh, in the tomb, if you went into the tomb, you would be confronted by a twice life-size statue of a, a seated figure. And uh, we can tell from the, the red hair and the mushroom style that he was a Canaanite, not an Egyptian. And what's very interesting, on the bottom left-hand bit, you can't really see it in there, there are slight indications of colour, and it's been enhanced on the next image to show that this was stripes and the top uh, right hand image is a um, Im imagined, imagined uh, reconstruction of what the full statue might have looked like. And what's interesting is that this statue has been attacked, the face has been hacked off. So this man who was given such an incredible honour at some subsequent time came to be a figure of hate. Now, when you apply the chronology of um, David rolled further into this history. He identifies the um, pharaoh who would have appointed Joseph as vizier as Amen Emhat the third. And during his uh, reign, Nile floods or the Nile levels were particularly high. At some stages, there was a, a, a gorge called the Semna Gorge where just during his reign, they were marking the heights of the, the water levels, uh, suggesting that there was concern over what was going on. And uh, at some stage, at the height, these water levels were 21 meters above average. So what effect might this have had? Well, initially, the, the, flood, the, the Nile floods every year deposited nutrient-rich uh, silt in which they could grow their crops. A higher water level would mean a greater area covered uh, with silt and thus abundant crops. But get to a certain level and this flooding would be too severe, it might wash villages away, but it would take too long to recede in order to get a full crop season. And so it would lead to famine. S sitting very nicely within our story of Joseph and his dream. And if you look at the bottom of this map, you can see a lake uh, just above a town called Fayum. And what's interesting about this um, lake is that you can see on this map on the right, there is a what's labelled as a supply canal. And alongside it, Armin Emhat III was buried. What's really interesting about that is he originally built a pyramid somewhere else and then built a second pyramid here. And close to his pyramid is a labyrinthine structure, which looks like it might have been an administrative headquarters. So this appears to have been a very significant area for Armin Emhat. And what's remarkable, this is a modern day map. And you can see at the starting in the bottom right hand corner is this supply canal. And look what even today it is called. It's called the Bar Yusuf, which translates as waterway of Joseph. So that's a picture of it. So we might surmise then that Joseph constructed this canal in order to divert floodwaters from the Nile into the lake. And this was part of the, 
the great prosperity that um, Armin Emhat experienced and why he was so grateful to Joseph and to this uh, particular area. So none of this constitutes definitive proof, but it is plausible evidence of the Bible. And Roll now believes that rather than regard Herodotus as the father of history, we should regard uh, Moses as the father of history. And if you want to see even more about this, Roll's latest project is in association with the man on the right called Tim Stanley. And if you get uh, Amazon Prime, you can um, look at this um, video, again, very interesting, involves David role and it's um, more expansive still in terms of the range of evidence it's looking at. There's also the website where you could buy it if you're interested. So I said this was all an illustration. What does it illustrate? Well, we've got these two characters here on the left, David Roll, who's an agnostic and he closes the TV series saying, I did not set out to prove the Bible, but that appears to be the effect of what he has done. Whereas Kitchen, did set out to prove the Bible. He's an evangelical Christian devoted to proving the Bible, and yet his orthodox view has led to the Bible being rejected as historically unreliable. Roll's chronology, on the other hand, offers a harmony between archaeology and the Bible, um, achieved not by faith, but by a willingness to question orthodox interpretations. So what do we learn by that? So Roll's reinterpretation appears to have settled an apparent conflict between archaeology and the Bible. So in doing so, he, as it appear, offered credibility, supported the reliability of the Bible. So the point I'm trying to make here is that when we question how we interpret the Bible, we're not questioning whether the Bible is inspired, um, its divine nature in any way. We're simply saying, have we understood what the Bible is, the divinely inspired Bible is trying to tell us? And are there other conflicts that may be settled if we reconsider the way that we interpret scripture? And we're going to be going on to look at that in the next three classes in relation to Genesis 1 to 11. For now, thank you very much. Bye.